You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network, produced at 3CR Community Radio on Wurundjeri Country. You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network with Idwin Jeffrey. This week, we're looking at native bees and breaking down the Save the Bee campaign. Often there's a lot of focus on honeybees and their role in Australia. Well, it's easy to value them. They provide us with a product, honey. But this sort of overlooks the thousands of native bee species that exist in Australia and all the problems that the invasive honeybee brings to the Australian ecosystem. To look further at this and sort of look deeper into the catch cry of Save the Bees, we're going to be chatting with Dr. Kit Prendergast, a.k.a. Bee Bebet, a native bee researcher who has put out countless research around how we better support native bee populations in Australia, including actually discovering a new species of bee in Perth last year. We'll be chatting with Kit about her PhD, where she looks at the efficacy of bee hotels in the backyard, and a recent conversation article that she co-authored looking at the invasive honeybee and how it flies under the radar as an invasive species, and what we can be doing in our urban backyards to better protect it. A lot of environmental campaigns are relatively overlooked, but the Save the Bees catch cry has gone global. There's a lot of memes, a lot of attention, there's constant references to the bee movie, and there's this cry for, for save the honeybee, protect our gardens, and protect our food security. We like to think of our honeybees as supporting and growing gardens, but in the recent article you co-authored for The Conversation, You guys suggest that they actually can disrupt native pollination systems. You guys suggest that the honeybee can actually disrupt native pollination systems, alter seed production, and reduce the genetic diversity of native plants. So how does the honeybee do all this and pose threat to our native ecosystem? Yeah, so there is a lot of um, myths surrounding bees and the sort of Save the Bees campaign and don't even get me started on the bee movie. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so there's there's more to bees than, than honeybees. There's actually over 20,000 species of bees in the world and over 2,000 species of bees in Australia. And when I talk about the species of bees in Australia, these are ones that evolved in Australia, so they're native parts of the ecosystem. The European honeybee is, of course, in Australia, and it's very prevalent across most of Australia, but it's an introduced species. So we have to keep that in mind. When you see, say, a big colony of honeybees in a tree in the bush, those aren't wild bees. Those are feral honeybees. Um, So... Anything feral in Australia tends to not be that great for our native fauna and flora. So 
honeybees, they, they're important for agriculture, um, pollinating many crops, of course important for honey production, um, but they can have serious negative effects on our native bees. And um, there's been accumulating evidence. Uh, a few years ago, I published a review on the evidence for and against um, honeybee impacts on native bees. And what's interesting is that there's so many opinion papers on this and there's not too many data papers at, at present, but research has been accumulating that there can be cases where honeybees can outcompete our native bees for nectar and pollen resources. Um, they can also disrupt pollination systems. They can favour um, exotic plants like weeds and um, cause the spread of weeds. They um, can be reservoirs of disease and um, they can also compete with native possums and parrots and owls for hollows to um, nest in. So they can have a range of disruptive impacts on our ecosystems. And just sorry, just picking up on that uh, opinion versus concrete data, is it sort of in alignment? Does, do the opinion pieces sort of echo what we're seeing in data or is there a bit of a, a disconnect between, you know, when you're saying that there's sort of this data, this missing data? So it's more that I guess there's been little investment in conducting um, research on honeybee competition, firstly because doing um, research, especially competition experiments, is very time-consuming and costly, and you have to get funds from somewhere. And, of course, industries like the honeybee industry aren't going to fund um, those sorts mm. of research projects. So I think that's, that's part of the issue is that there has been little um, research investment in conducting these experiments. And I think some people also um, a bit wary of doing that because of potential backlash they will get from industry if they do find that there's honeybee competition. And um, I know from experience that there are, you know, online there's always there's always nasty people and when you prevent, present, you know, science that goes against something they like and uh, challenges their lifestyle, we only have to think about all the evidence about, you know, how certain lifestyles are not good for climate change or just the fact of climate mm. change, how people could get really angry about that. Um, same here when um, you're presenting evidence in a very factual way. Um, that there are some conditions where honeybees can negatively harm ecosystems and some people get very unhappy with you saying that. So I think that's part of the reason why there hasn't been as much um, data on looking at the impacts of honeybees. Um, but in theory, we have many reasons to believe that honeybees can cause negative impacts um, because we only have to look at all the other introduced species in Australia. And honeybees are very, very abundant um, in most ecosystems. And this was part of the um, review that I did in most like, studies where you're measuring the abundance of honeybees and wild bees. Honeybees outnumber all the wild bee species. Mm, um, wow. So they are very 
very abundant, so that's one of the reasons. They're very good at foraging because they're a eusocial colonial species. They can communicate to all the other bees in their hive where the best resources are. So they're actually, you know, it's an amazing system of cooperation that the honeybees have, um, but it does mean that they can have a competitive edge. And, um, you know, as mentioned, they will forage on any exotic weeds so they can um, favour the spread of weeds. Yeah, almost recognising it as an invasive species. I suppose when we think of invasive species, we think of the poster um, cane toads, you know, yeah. which are sorry, very easy to identify, but no one wants to go after the honeybee, um, which you sort of made the point before. Uh, so talking about counter strategies to then deal with invasive bees, I mean, what can we do? Because we can't necessarily always find swarms or, or you know, have sort of an ad hoc approach. Are there a few solutions we can do which which might have a, a better chance of tackling this, situ- this, this problem? Yeah, it is um, a, a tricky problem and, you know, it would be good if from the start people recognised that feral honeybees were a problem. There's not going to be one solution. Um, so I think it requires... Firstly, for people that keep bees, they need to be really on top of swarm prevention. Swarm is something that honeybees do naturally, but there are ways to limit or prevent it Mm -hmm. um, by, for example, clipping the queen's wings or um, making sure that the the hive is big enough to accommodate the the growing colony. Um, If if there is a swarm that is sort of newly out in the environment if people um, catch it before it goes and sets up a hollow in a tree. Mm-hmm. Um, easily found um, colonies that are in trees, they can be eradicated. Obviously, we want to use safe methods, limit any sort of um, toxins into the environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also don't want to exacerbate the problem. So, we don't need any more backyard beekeepers. There's there's plenty of honeybees, um, and if anyone has a hive, they really should register it. Like there should be, it's like with cats. Like everyone has to register the cat mm-hmm. or their dog, um, but there's no like actual laws about registering honeybees at the moment. Or there are, but they're sort of like it depends on what council you're in. So it really should be essential to register how many hives you have. So you know that there's an idea of how many people own hives and there should be like checks on them, things like that. Like at the moment, it's very unregulated, the industry. Um, So let's leave the beekeeping to the professional beekeepers, um, limit sort of the hobbyist beekeeping. Anyone that does get into bees, they should have training courses about how to prevent swarming, how to check on their hives for hive health, all that sort of thing. So Mm. it's a complex problem. Um, but hopefully we can at least, you know, reduce the risk. Mm. And I know there's been suggestions of, like, traps to catch bee swarms and also uh, pheromones used to catch invasive species. Are these also sort of – that that's previously used been used for cane toads. Are there sort of um, – are, are we looking into these sorts of solutions as well or are they sort yeah, of less – Unfortunately, a bit less. Well, I think the the pheromone traps are a really good idea. 
at the moment, what's been done in New South Wales is unfortunately at toxic bait stations, which have attracted a lot of controversy. Um, and one of the issues is that there's no like sort of independent scientists going out there and monitoring. Firstly, are they working? Are they reducing the number of feral colonies? Secondly, um, are, what is the effect on non-target species? Are they being affected by the baits? Are they benefiting from a reduction mm. in feral honeybees? This sort of data is so important, but um, as far as I know, it's not been collected or there's, there's not much transparency about it. So that's, that's the strategy that's being used. And, yeah, many people are um, very critical of it. So switching tracks now, Kit, to other research that you've done, I was reading one of your articles talking about the efficacy of bee hotels. You know, these are the blocks of wood with drilled holes uh, or the collection of cane or bamboo that you can often buy in gardening shops or making it for the backyard. And they're sold under this illusion that these bee hotels are places of respite, to support your local bee population. But I've always wondered if it was a bit of a PR exercise and if these actually did any good. Could you tell us a little bit more about what bee hotels are and what brought you into this line of study? Yeah, so bee hotels are very popular and being sold at garden stores, but it's quite apparent from, for example, the label that shows a picture of a honeybee on them that um, they're not, they haven't been designed by like consulting the literature. So mm. for my study, I read everything I could on in the scientific literature about bee hotels, which are called trap nests in the literature, which is so, so much less lovely Appealing. than bee hotels. <laughs> <laughs> so read everything I could and I was like, what is the design that appears to work and let's test it in... Um, in Perth because, you know, environments can be different, different bees. Um, so they've never been sort of like systematically tested in Perth. So the design that I settled with was wooden blocks made of native wood, which in Perth I chose Jarrah, which is a very hard wood as well, so it's not going to decay mm-hmm. easily. And I put in um, a range of hole sizes from 4 millimetres to 10 millimetres and five holes of each. And I set them up in bushland remnants as well as residential gardens. I had eight hotels um, per site and I monitored monthly and I put in little cardboard tubes so that I could take the tubes out and rear the bees in the lab to make sure that not only were bees nesting the bee hotels, which is obviously of course, the, the first important part, but the bees are actually successfully developing mm. and emerging because otherwise it would be very bad if the bees were nesting in there and then all the babies died. Yeah. So <laughs> that's what I did. Interesting. And from your study, you had uh, 24 different species of bees nesting and using these bee hotels. It, when I was reading it, the majority uh, was this resin bee called, and correct me if I'm wrong, but Megakylie Um. 
Yes, so 24 species, the main one though is, um, so there's a bit of, I call them mega chili, some people <laughs> call them mega Kylie. I just like, so it's spelled M-E-G-A-C-H-I-L-E. Um, I just think mega chili sounds cuter. I don't know <laughs> whether that is even, like there's, I've had it said both ways by scientists and I'm going to say mega chili because it sounds cuter. Um, mega chili erythropyga. Now, scientific names are in Latin, and erythropyga means um, red butt, essentially. Nice. <laughs> so, yeah, it has it has a little red bottom on it, and yeah, that was the main main species that dominated using the nest. It really loved the nest. I didn't see them that much in the field, which is quite interesting. But mm-hmm. I was doing um, bee collection um, surveys at the time. The bee hotels were up, like, collecting bees on flowers at the same site. Didn't see them that much, but, yeah, they really loved the bee hotels. And can you tell us a little bit about this bee? I mean, is it stingless? Is it solo? How does it, it organise and what does it do? Uh, so it is a solitary bee. So they don't live in colonies, pretty much. Um, the majority of native bees don't live in colonies. And... They, the females can sting, the males don't have a sting, no, no male bees have a sting, but they are not aggressive at all. They won't go up and sting you, unlike honeybees, very unaggressive. You can stand right by the bee hotel, watch it do its thing, and it won't go and attack you. Um, so they nest in little holes. Um, they don't create the holes themselves. They're created by wood-boring beetles, and this is what the bee hotels are replicating, um, holes in trees. And she will collect nectar and pollen and create a little um, nectar and pollen pudding, I call them, for the babies, like this little ball of nectar and pollen together. Again, this is different from honeybee life cycles. She'll then lay the egg on it um, and then create a partition in the nest and start again. So along the nest, there'll be a number of cells some will be empty and we don't really know why they do this but I think it could be a sort of like strategy to fool um, parasitic wasps into thinking that there's no more um, offspring in the nest so there's like a little safety um, safety check there so they'll do that then they'll finish all the little cells in the nest and seal the top and this bee will use um, resin and chewed up plant materials and sometimes a little bit of sand to seal up her nest. Interesting. Now, you had a look at, you mentioned before, but you had a look at sort of bee hotels in bushland remnants versus sort of more residential urbanised hotels. And I know another focus of this was looking at whether this, you know, with the effects of urbanisation, how we then support bee populations. Um I noticed that in your results there was a higher number of occupied nests with offspring in the bushland remnants. Were they effective in residential, more urbanised hotels? And do you think it could, like bee hotels, could be a solution then to supporting bee populations? Yeah, so um, there were more occupied in the bushland remnants, which um, supports my observations doing the fieldwork that there were way more native bees and species in bushland remnants. So this is more of a reflection, not that bee hotels are less effective in residential gardens, but rather that 
there's fewer native bees in the residential gardens mm. already. Um, so, yes, I think that putting bee hotels, properly designed ones up in residential gardens, is a good thing because it might help boost the populations um, in the residential gardens because there might be fewer bees there because there's less trees, therefore less available nesting resources. Of course, we need both sides of the equation. We need both the nesting resources as well as the foraging resources, the food. Um, and so in my published thesis and papers as well as this bee hotel one, um, a big finding was that higher proportions of native plants are really important for um, the native bees, so we need more native flora um, in big patches in gardens. And then another paper that was published like a week before the Bee Hotel one, again, part of my PhD, but didn't quite make it into the PhD because I didn't get ran out of funding in time. Um, this one was on the actual flowers that the native bees like to visit, and they had a strong preference for native flowers, but not just any native flowers, so there's um, a list of those flowers in the paper as well mm -hmm. as in my book, which is called um, Creating a Haven for Native Bees. It has a list of good flowers for native bees as well as a big section on bee hotels and the native bees that you can expect to live in the bee hotels as well. Oh, interesting. And just on that sort of myth-busting front, your results suggested that total na native flower species richness was negatively associated with the number of completed nests, which was a bit of a surprise because we often think, you know, if it's surrounded with lots of rich diversity of plants, then, you know, the bees are frolicking and having a good time. Yeah. Uh, do you have some ideas of why this unexpected twist showed up in your results? Yeah, so I was very surprised at first and this also came up in my other paper that was in my thesis um, where I was looking at the environmental correlates of um, native bee abundance and species richness. And yet both cases, the bee hotels and the bees in the field, significant negative relationship between total number of native plant species and native bees. And I was like, oh, have I done something wrong? <laughs> Went back through my results, same, same results, so double-checked it. And then I looked more closely at the actual specific details. And that's what we actually really need to do. Um, these sort of broad-brushed um, approaches about bees that are just like sort of plant bees, save the bees, um, it depends on what we're planting. And so when you have many different species within a small area, this means that there's going to be fewer flowers of any particular plant species and when you've got um, gardens in particular that have lots of different plant species um, there's probably going to be fewer local native plant species and so it's going to be dominated by exotics or more likely that there's going to be plant species that the native bees don't like. So I guess you can liken it to if you're fussy like me and so you go to a buffet, there might be maybe like only one or two things you can you, you want to eat. But if you go into your pantry with 
food that you know you like and you've bought lots of it, you know, you're more, you're more likely to go to your pantry because you know there's things that you want in large mm-hmm. amounts and go to somewhere where there might be only one or two things that you actually like. For anyone who's seeking to support native bees in their backyard and set up a, you know, set up a bee hotel, what now, now that you've done all of this study, what's the optimal model that they should be looking or making to support native bees? Yeah, so um, not something that's too massive because that can attract um, parasites and if there's like a disease or a parasite, it can spread throughout the nest. So I know that there's like, Recently, I've been tagged in like these um, posts about like the Netherlands creating a massive bee tower or a massive bee wall. It's like it looks cool, but like <laughs> in nature, that's not what happens. And just speaking from experience, when one of my um, bee nests got parasitized by tiny little wasps called Melatobia, and these things they multiply in the thousands and spread like wildfire. That's not a good idea. So have lots of smaller bee hotels, have holes um, no bigger than 10 millimetres in diameter. Um, use, if you can, um, native wood. Um, try and upcycle. So, like, I use um, old pellets or if you can use, like, wood offcuts, things like that. Um, or you can get um, bamboo, just keeping in mind those um, hole diameters. And make sure the lengths are, I say, at least eight centimeters long, ideally 15 centimeters long. Mm-hmm. Um, and that means that more babies can be produced per nest, less likely they're all going to be parasitized, and there's going to be a more even sex ratio. Uh, and yeah, avoid, I guess, buying those like cheap bee hotels um, that you can find in, in Aldi and, and Bunnings. They're not designed very well. But the, the good thing is that, you know, it's quite easy to just get a random off-cut of wood mm, and drill holes in it. Yeah. yeah. Um, as I said, I do have a book called Creating a Haven for Native Bees. Um, there's a Facebook page, and you can also um, message me on my Instagram, which is bbaybet underscore, underscore performer, or um, find me on um, the Buzz and Wild Bees, which is my Facebook group, and you can grab a copy of my book there, which has more information on bee hotels, as well as the flowers they need and profiles of bees that were used to bee hotels, including Mega Chili Erythropaga. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network with Idwin. Today on the show, we heard from Dr. Kit Prendergast, who you can find on Twitter at bbebet. Articles referenced on today's show will be in the rundown as well. But otherwise, Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Radio Network for all their hard work in broadcasting today's episode and the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their generous financial support. Earth Matters is produced at 3CR Community Radio in Fitzroy, Melbourne and we can be contacted at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. That's all for now, but tune in next week for more environmental and social justice stories.